Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, old sports, and welcome to the 2023 In Memoriam special on the of the Hello, Old Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. Andrew, I'm, I'm my name is Dan Newman. I am joined as always by my brother, my co-host, Andrew Newman. And this is the episode or the episodes, I guess I should say, where we talk about uh, many of the sports figures who passed away in the year 2023, discuss them and talk a little bit about their lives and legacies. Andrew, how are you doing today? I am doing well, Dan. We're heading towards the end of the year, and this is, you know, the last few years of that we've been doing this show. This has kind of become the the thing we do the last month or so with the podcast. And, you know, we recorded a bunch of different sessions with different hosts of other shows and things like that. So, you know, we uh we've already done a few of these and obviously we, we put them in, in a different order, but um, you know, this is sort of the capstone of the year. It is. And as Andrew mentioned, uh, the way this works is we don't necessarily record these chronologically, but they will air chronologically. So we've already recorded interviews and segments with about a half dozen or so of our Sports History Network colleagues, and you'll hear them interspersed in throughout the episodes. And then uh, on the other uh, individuals, it'll just be Andrew and me or maybe another special guest or two here and there. But we, we always enjoy doing this. It's sort of a way of taking something sad which is some of these um some of these individuals uh you know all-time greats and all-stars in the various sports taking something sad which is their passing away this year and and trying to do something positive with with it which is taking one one more look at their lives and legacies so uh we have a number of individuals we're going to talk to you about uh unfortunately almost every year it was the fourth year of doing this uh Almost every year after doing this, uh, we end up having to record a last episode or a last few segments uh, in late December, early January, because uh, without fail, somebody else always passes away. But uh, th- this will be sort of uh, kicking it off here tonight and, uh, you know, probably be two episodes, maybe three, depending on how long it goes. Yep. And, uh, you know, th- thankfully, so far, since you've put out the initial list, we've only had one or two to add to it. But um as we're recording this on December 19th, it would be, you know, recent history has indicated we'll have at least one more person to add to the list between now and the end of the year. That's exactly right. So why don't we uh, go ahead and get started here? And uh, in just a second, you will hear from our first guest. All right. So uh, why don't we go ahead and kick it off here? And uh, we actually have a guest for our very first in memoriam honoree but first i'll turn it over to you andrew to uh tell us about him sure art mcnally born in 1925 passed away on january 1st mcnally was inducted into the pro football hall of fame in 2022 the first nfl game official to be inducted 
He served as a field judge and referee in the NFL from 1959 to 1967 before being named director of officiating, a position which he held from 1968 to 1991. And we are honored to have with us uh, for the fourth year in a row as a guest on the Hello World Sports in Memoriam podcast. We were chatting just before uh, we got started here about uh, how this gentleman is uh, somebody who's been doing this with us uh, right from the start, right from the first year of this. And that is the uh, host of the Pigskin Dispatch, among other things, on the Sports History Network, uh, Mr. Darren Hayes. Darren, thanks so much for joining us here. Uh, Dan and Andrew, it's always a pleasure. And I, I thank you for the invite to come back again this year. So yeah. I go ahead, Andrew. I was just going to say, sadly, you know, sadly, but not really surprisingly, it seems like every year there's a there's a few guys that we can have you on because they're kind of in your wheelhouse to talk about. And um, this one, especially because um, I have to be honest, this was one. And, and I remember, I mean, I shouldn't say I remember like it's something somebody should be impressed by. I remember when Art McNally was inducted into the Hall of Fame. It, it was only last year, but. It was he was the first referee to be so inducted. And so I was a little bit nervous in trying sort of pulling this together to, you know, make sure that we'd have some adequate um adequate material to talk about Mr. McNally. And you know? so I was glad that Darren was was willing to join us. So Darren, why don't you just kind of tell us a little bit about what made you want to come on and talk to us about Art McNally? Well, I as many of you already know, I, I was a football official for the high school level. Uh before I was a podcaster. And, uh, so I'm a brother of the zebra and Art McNally is one <laughs> that, uh, I always sort of looked up to. I mean, just think about what this guy did. He started officiating in 1959 and to put that in perspective, that's like just after the greatest game ever played was, was played. Mm -hmm. He stopped working for the NFL in 2015 he was still working in some capacity up in the booths, helping him out with some, some of the rules and stuff like that. So 2015, you know, that's the Tom Brady era and the Patriots. Win. So just think about all the generations of NFL football that this guy was a part of. So first of all, the longevity, and he is, you know, definitely the face of officiating. There's so many things in officiating that he did from the NFL level that sort of turned down to the college level and the high school level and, and below. And, uh, you know, so we're, we're all thankful for him for that. Uh, the other thing that really, uh, puts him in a place of honor is if you sit there and think about it, you know, Cooperstown put their first umpire in, uh, the hall of fame, 1953, Hockey placed one of their officials in 1963 in their Hall of Fame. Pro basketball, 1959. It took till 2022 for the NFL to put uh, one of theirs in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So, uh, and they picked the, the right guy to do it because this guy, like uh, you, Andrew was saying just a little bit ago, has done so much for the game, you know, including things, you know, like instant replay, uh, putting a seventh crew member on uh, on the field, which is gigantic uh, for anybody that's worked a, a football game with five or six, just having that seventh person makes a big difference. I can't imagine doing it at the speed that the NFL players are playing at than the, only doing it with five or six people. So yeah, McNally is uh, definitely uh, one to honor and I, I feel honored to be able to talk to him with you guys tonight. One of the things that I thought was interesting, they called him the father of instant replay. He was one of the first or was the was as supervisor of officials 
he and you know people may not realize this i think andrew and i probably talked about this before on the podcast instant replay for the first time came into being in the nfl in the mid 1980s it was there for a few years then it disappeared for a while and came back and mcnally was sort of the architect of that original instant replay system and you you take it so much for granted these days that replay is going to be a thing in every sport, but especially when you're watching football wasn't always the case. And we can all remember a time when instant replay was not a part of the sport. Art McNally is somebody who really brought it into being. And so that's one of the many reasons why we'd want to commemorate him. Yeah. And I think also it's, I think it was, correct me if I'm wrong, was the 86 season that they first brought instant replay in the original version of it and i mean you kind of have to think about how and i know it was kind of there was some backlash to it it went away for a while but it was kind of i don't know if revolutionary is too strong a word but certainly pioneering to use that kind of technology i mean baseball it was a debate for decades after that basketball the nba for a long time had it just for did the shot get off before the buzzer that kind of thing Mm -hmm. um you know, it, for them to be doing any form of instant replay in 1986 and then bringing it back, whatever it was, 97, 98, wherever it was in there, um, you know, that you have to really have a little bit of um, a little bit of foresight to put something like that in in the mid 80s. Yeah, it, it definitely was. And from an officiating perspective, I mean, it was sort of split because that's right about the time when I started officiating is right about when that was happening. I started in the mid 80s. and you had some old school officials, you know, at the high school level, you know, of course we didn't have instant replay, but just having conversations with them, they're sitting there, you know, I don't want anybody looking over my shoulder and correcting me if I made a mistake or telling me I did a good job. I know if I got the call right, I made the call. Then you had the other half that were a little bit more progressive that agreed with McNally and said, you know, our main thing is we want to get the calls right. If, you know, we have things happening, you know, so quickly, uh, you know, you have, very few eyeballs on 22 players. And if something happens right in front of you, it's hard to see it. If you're real close to it, where you, where you have distance, like from the stands or the the press box, you can see it a little bit better television, you know, being that same perspective and it gets the call right. And it makes the game uh, fair and level. And that's what uh, any official is striving for. So McNally was very uh, uh, insightful in in doing that. Two other things I wanted to, so I was going to say two other things I wanted to mention, including one that I've honestly tried to find out information about for years. So I was glad to see this. The first one, um, Miss, I'm reading from the New York Times obituary. It says Mr. McNally also implemented rule changes, including the illegal contact rule, which restricted contact on receivers by defenders in coverage beyond five yards of the line of scrimmage. And I mean, think about you know just how much that altered the course of football and you know whatever your problems are with the current product or if you don't think you know that defenders have enough options now unlikely football would develop in the nfl would develop into what it is today without you know the passing game opening up significantly and most importantly and i have wondered this for years i've always tried to pinpoint the year at which off and this will be a visual for darren and, and my brother and i'll try to uh, speak it out for everybody else. I have always wondered exactly when blocking went from offensive linemen were only allowed to do this and basically make the 
the fists at their chest with their elbows pointed out to where they were actually able to use their hands. And it says here he was also, uh, as well as allowing offensive linemen to extend their arms and open their hands when pass blocking. So I still don't have an exact year that happened, but now I have a name for who championed that changing. I think that was right in that same time frame of the late late 80s. I know that's when it hit the high school level is right like my second or third year in. Because, uh, you know, play, mm-hmm. playing under one set of rules and then starting to officiate and the rules are changing. I mean, that, like you said, that was pretty dramatic change. Uh, you oh, can yeah. have open hands, too. You can never have open hands and extended. So that, that was a big rule in McNally. Yeah, he was a champion of that, too. And you mentioned the five-yard uh, contact rule for defensive players, for defensive backs and covering receivers. One of the things that Andrew and I talked about, we and Darren, I, you're being a Steelers fan, you'll probably appreciate this too. We did an episode uh, earlier this year. It was sort of a, the first in what we think is going to be a series where we sort of talk about the wilderness years of a team after the dynasty. And the first one we did was on this Pittsburgh Steelers uh, of the 80s. And in my research, one of the things that I found uh posited as a possible reason, and I think there were probably a lot of them, is that Chuck Knoll and some of the members of the Steelers defense never adjusted to that change in the 19, I think it was the 78 or 79 season was the first year of that five-yard contact rule, that they never really adjusted to that. So that's something else that McNally helped usher in that really does impact not just the game, but also maybe the fate of of some of these other teams, some of the other things he did, um, he modernized the evaluation and grading system for officials. He listed his home phone number so that uh, members of the public could call him up if they wanted to discuss calls. And he was also he was in his uh, what, what I guess would have been maybe his second to last year as an official. He was actually an alternate referee for Super Bowl one. He, he didn't get on the field, but he was an alternate referee for Super Bowl one. So probably in the Hall of Fame more for his time in the front office as the director of officials, as a supervisor, rather than his time as an on the field official. But, um, you know, definitely had had an interesting career as both. Yeah, no, you, you mentioned this, the Steelers connection. He, it goes back, uh, the Immaculate Reception, McNally wasn't on the field for that, but the uh, Fred Swearingen, who was the referee on that game, ended up going into the dugout, if you've ever seen the, the replays of it. He goes into the what would be the Pittsburgh Pirates dugout and picks up the black phone, and that phone was Art McNally on the other end of it. Mm-hmm. And some claim that might have been the National Football League's first use of instant replay. <laughs> you know, they, they unofficially won't declare it unofficially. They won't declare it, but there's rumors out there that McNally told Swearinger, yeah, hey, I think he caught it. And, you know, it's a touchdown. It's a score. Go ahead and, and raise your go out in the field and raise your hands up. So, you know, so that, that's kind of an interesting side note to McNally, too. It'll be interesting to see if this paves the way for more officials, more referees to get into the Hall of Fame. Because as you mentioned, Darren, the other sports have a plethora of officials in the Hall of Fame. And it, it took, you know, 60, you know, almost 60 years for the uh, the Professional Football Hall of Fame to put somebody in. So it will really be interesting to see uh, to see how to see if that happens. Yeah. 
most definitely. You know, there's some other things that McNally brought in too. You know, the wireless microphones that we're so used to hearing a referee talk to the crowds. I mean, I don't know if you guys can remember the days where it was just a signal and that was it. Well, McNally helped promote that and put the microphones on the officials. He was also the first, uh, start of the first, prof- in the, any professional league training and evaluating and recruiting officials. Uh, he, he helped organize that as well, which is pretty monumental, uh, to, especially to spread to the other sports genres around the world. So that's uh, quite, quite a remarkable man. Very much so. Very much a remarkable man and very much somebody that was worth uh, worth commemorating. And the first honoree of our 2023 In Memoriam special, Mr. Art McNally. Uh, Darren, thank you for joining us. Uh, we'll we'll talk with you a little more uh, later on uh, in the program here. So uh, we'll uh, we'll let you go for now. But uh, we'll hear from Darren again as we go on here tonight. All right. So thanks again to Darren Hayes for kicking us off, uh, host of the Pigskin Dispatch, and talking about uh, Hall of Fame uh, NFL official Art McNally. Next up, uh, we're going to talk to you about Sal Bando, who was born in 1944 and died on January 20th. A four-time All-Star, Bando started third base for the Oakland A's of the 1970s and was team captain of the athletics team that won three consecutive World Series from 1972 to 1974. This A's team is the this early 70s A's team. It's the only non-Yankee team ever to win three World Championships in a row. And as far as just characters on the field, off the field, they're kind of unprecedented in Major League Baseball history, maybe. And uh, they were captained by and uh, led in some ways by uh, Sal Bando at third base. Yeah. And and also just the fact that, you know, I guess the only real comp would be the just a few years later, the 70s Bronx Zoo Yankees. But at least there they the owner had problems with the manager and occasionally with a player or two, but there wasn't the old, the sort of ongoing open rebellion between the, the, I guess Jordan and Pippen with the, uh, the bulls management at the end, but very rare where, where guys are, are pretty much openly talk about how much they hate the owner on a team that's having some success and, you know, justifiably so in a lot of ways with Bando. But um, like you said, he was a, uh, he was the captain of those A's teams. He actually started with Kansas City for a couple of years before they ultimately moved to Oakland and was there, you know, up through their great exodus in the mid 70s. He was a what he was an all star four times. It looks like here his best mm-hmm. year being 71, where he finished second in the MVP voting, um, obviously played on those uh, on those World Series teams and won those championships. So, um, you know, not necessarily the best player on those teams. Obviously, you know, you talk about Reggie, you talk about uh, Raleigh fingers and, and that kind of thing. But certainly a core member of the uh, of that team for a, a good decade period. And in fact, he was second in 1971, not only to a teammate, uh, Vita Blue, who was the both the Cy Young and the uh, MVP award winner as a pitcher that year. But Vita Blue, also somebody who passed away this year that we'll talk about a little later in the show. A couple of uh, of incidents uh, with uh, or a couple of uh, just just points to make about Sal Bando. He was named team captain of the team at 
uh, 25 years of age. So very early in his career, 1969. So basically shortly after moving to Oakland, uh, the A's named Sal Bando, the captain of the team. He actually, I was shocked by this, and this comes from his his Sabre biography. He has the highest war in Major League Baseball from 1969 to 1973. Uh, His war in those... Five years is a combined 33 and even 33.0, 8.2, 5.8, 5.7, 4.4, and then 7.2 in 1973. So not necessarily a guy, like you said, who gets remembered to history, but, you know, in his day, you know, finished second, third, fourth in MVP voting, all-star in 72, 73, and 74. So, you know, not a great player, but a very good player in his day. Yeah. And after that, he, he went to the Brewers for a few years, ultimately ended up rising in the ranks through the Brewers system to become the general manager. Um, one quote from that same Sabre biography, one little section I want to read here talks about Charles Finley's and Bando. And it's kind of interesting to look at now with the context of the A's finishing out their long string in Oakland and, you know, getting ready to move to Las Vegas within in the next year or two. It says Bando was an outspoken critic of Finley's constant meddling in players matters and lives. The lack of a television contract to broadcast A's games in the Bay Area and general fan apathy. In another town, someplace back east, we might be heroes, said Bando in May of 1973. Here, we're not even something special. The A's ranked 8th and 11th of the 12 AL teams in attendance in 73 and 74, despite the championships, while the Coliseum, which, again, they'd been playing in for less than 10 years at this point, Mm -hmm. was... was derided as the mausoleum for its mortuary-like atmosphere. The And this is another Bando quote. The Oakland Coliseum is the work par- worst park in baseball, Bando said. The weather is terrible, which, I mean, they really can't do anything about. Uh, there's too much room beyond the foul lines. The ball doesn't travel well. The players lack good parking facilities. And the security for our families and ourselves is poor. So that was 50 years ago. And I don't think much has happened to that stadium since then, except they built a big upper deck to block the view for the Raiders to come back. And then the Raiders left again. There's a great book uh, called uh, dynastic bombastic, fantastic uh, Reggie Raleigh catfish and Charlie Finley's swinging A's uh, by Jason turbo. It's a, a book about the, the A's dynasty of the 1970s. If, if you haven't finished your Christmas list, it's a good book, good book to ask for, for Christmas. I would, I would recommend that. That's the book um, I just got for Christmas. That is the book you just got for Christmas. I've not was, read it yet, but the, 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 I, 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 I have it. Little bit of an inside joke there, yes. Um, and in this quote, uh, the the traveling secretary of the team, a guy by the name of Jim Bank, says, "Take him away. That team was nothing." And the pitching coach says, "Pitching coach West Stock says, if there was one guy who made a difference, there's no doubt in my mind it was Sal Bando." That A's team is perhaps best known, and there's very few teams that have done this really in the history of sports, uh, let alone in baseball history. After winning two. World Series, uh, Dick Williams, the manager, is so frustrated with Charlie's fin- Charles O'Finley and his meddling that he actually leaves the team after the 73 World Series and replaced by Alvin Dark. So not a lot of teams win a World Series and then after the manager quit in disgust. Dick Williams, who is a very prickly guy and also a guy who manages Hall of Fame manager, manages a lot of different places throughout his career. He manages the Impossible Dream Red Sox in 67 
manages the A's for a couple years. He's the manager of the San Diego Padres in the early 80s when they go to the World Series. So a guy who was all over the place and didn't necessarily um, have the warmest relationship with some of his players, except for Sal Bando, who was the only player on the team who socializes with Dick Williams. So maybe that tell you, tells you something about Bando's ability to, to get along with anybody gets traded to the Milwaukee Brewers in the 1970s, mid seventies when Finley is uh, kind of selling off his whole team and then sort of stays active in the Brewers uh, organization and as general manager of a team for most of the, the 1990s, which is not necessarily the proudest, proudest time period in Milwaukee Brewers history, but he does have that front office uh, career that in addition to it, to his on field work. Yeah, the, the article talks about really his biggest thing, especially early in his Brewers tenure, was refusing to negotiate with Paul Molitor, which came back immediately to bite him when Molitor went to Toronto and won a championship. Mm-hmm. But, you know, a guy who distinguished himself on on one of the, you know, you mentioned one of the great dynasties, you know, of all time, obviously kind of flashed bright through the sky, very short time period. But like you said, nobody who's not the Yankees can boast three straight championships, not the big red machine A's, not the, you know, the famous Brooklyn Dodger teams. They only won one at all, not the LA Dodgers. You know, none of those teams have won three in a row except a bunch of different Yankee teams and the 72 to 74 A's, not the Connie Mack Philadelphia A's for that matter. Mm -hmm. And Sal Bando as the captain was a big part of it. All right. So uh, moving right along, our third uh, in memoriam honoree of the year is Billy Packer, who was born in 1940 and passed away on January 26th. Packer worked in college broadcasting for nearly four decades for both NBC and CBS Sports. He covered 34 Final Fours in his career and worked with such legendary broadcast partners as Kurt Gowdy, Dick Enberg, Brett Musburger, and Jim Nance. And uh, Andrew, unfortunately, is is not with me to record this particular honoree, but I am uh, glad and proud uh, to have with me, uh, I think for the for the third year in a row, uh, Dana Auguster from the Historically Speaking Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. So, Dana, uh, you're going to come on uh, throughout the episodes here to talk to me about or talk to us, I should say, about a few different uh, honorees in the world of college basketball and uh First up is Billy Packer. So thanks so much for joining me here tonight. Man, thank you for having me on once again. I, you know, once, I say, I, once again, I've looked forward to this. I look forward to this, doing this every year. It's my third year doing this. And, you know, once again, I'm look, you know, talking about different people. And, and this year is it, kind of different because these are people that I actually, as a kid growing up, mm-hmm. actually remember actually seeing and in Billy Packer's case, listening to. So, so Billy Packer, uh, basically the sort of consistent voice of po- college basketball from uh, th- sometime in the mid seventies all the way until two thousand eight. Yes, to me, he's the voice of the Final Four. When you heard his voice, you know you have certain announcers that when you hear their voice, you know what sport it is, or you know what's going on. You don't even have to see the television screen. You could actually, you actually hear that person's voice and you know what's going on. With Billy Packer, you knew it was the Final Four. Uh, anybody, I mean, first of all, he started his first Final Four he broadcast for NBC was in 1975. That was John Wooden's fi- last Final Four as coach of UCLA. Mm-hmm. And he 
was a broadcast all the way until 2009. Broadcast in the Final Four to, to 2009. That's a, that's a long time. That's several generations of fans that could recollect Billy Packer. And that was the thing that really struck me as we as I was looking back at this. He was there for so much college basketball history the 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 second final four uh that he ever did was the uh the great 1977 the the marquette upset of unc the mcguire coach team at, at marquette unc uh the upset of dean smith's carolina team that's that's uh, become so famous he did the magic bird uh michigan state indiana state game in 79 and then all those great final fours and championship games of the eighties, whether it was Jordan at Carolina or Jim Valvano at NC state, the glory days of the big East, Nova, Georgetown, St. John's, uh, Seton hall, all in the final four. And then into the nineties with, um, you know, with, with sort of the, you know, the, the great Krzyzewski Duke teams and the rivalries with Carolina and Kentucky and Rick Pitino and, you know, then going all the way over all the way into the 2000s with, with some of those great final fours, you know, again, kind of ending even in the, you know, in the Calipari years with the one and done. And so the mm-hmm. guy in almost 40 years saw so many different eras of college basketball, great moments. And he was the consistent voice through all those years. My brother and I, we did an episode on Fox Sports uh, about uh, earlier this year, I guess. And we talked about how up until last year, Joe Buck had done every World Series from, I think, 90, 2000. He'd done a few before that, but he started doing World Series in 90. I want to say he started in 90, in 2000, because NBC had the 99 series with the Braves and the Yankees. I think that was the last World Series yep. NBC had done. And then it turned over to Fox in 2000. They started trading off. so. Fox had their first one in 96. And then for like that latter half of the nineties, they were trading off with NBC. And I yeah. know this was Buck did the, the Yankee world series in 96 against Atlanta. Yeah, uh, and so we, you're right. So we talked about that and how, you know, I think in Buck's last year would have been, I think 21, I want to say. So in that 25 years, all the things that Joe Buck did and, you know, Mike Breen has done what every NBA final since, um, I don't know, 2005, Ooh, maybe. Yeah, I think that's about right. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I think he, he took over for Al Michaels yeah. at NBA, for mm-hmm. ABC. And obviously the Super Bowl has, uh, you know, it alternates the network. So it's not exactly the same thing. You know, Stanley Cup's been been everywhere. Right. Um, you know, in college football, you know, different, different, different iterations of things. So. Billy Packer is one of those guys, but he's been there every year. I think he probably, I think he started in 75. I think he missed 76 from what I saw. He wasn't in the booth for 76. And then, you know, every year from 77, you know, 30 some odd years. So it's just crazy. All the stuff this guy saw. What's amazing too, is that it changed networks in 1982. Mm -hmm. Um, the, The final four was on NBC up until 1981 through the 1981 uh, final four. And it changed over in 82, you know, with the Georgetown, uh, North Carolina final in, in new Orleans, which was one of the first final fours I remember watching, but it was, but he was with him. He was the one constant. When you talked about the final four, 
he was the one constant. I mean, it would change venues, different cities every year. It changed networks halfway through. It changed lead announcers from mm-hmm. time to time. But Packer was the consistent, was the constant. He was the constant. He was always there from 75. You said he missed in 76, but then from 77 on, he was there. And he also worked with, I mentioned this in, in the little intro I did there. He worked with some of the all-time greats. Broadcasting just, royalty is what I like to call it. Starting with Kurt Gowdy, who did Super Bowls and World Series and everything else. And, you know, Dick Enberg, you could say the same. Musburger did everything at one point or another in his career. Jim Nance has done everything from Final Fours to Masters to Super Bowls uh, to, you know, just all of these different things. So he worked with the royalty in addition to sort of being it himself. One thing, one thing about his, uh, I'm going to talk about his style in a second, because I have a little bit of a story about his style. Um, His style was pretty much the typical prototypical professional straight shooter. That's what Mm -hmm. he was like. He was this, he was a typical prototypical broadcasting color analyst, straight shooter. No nonsense. I mean, he had some criticism, meaning that sometimes that he would point out what the player did wrong more often than what the opposing player did right. Mm-hmm. And he would be kind of critical of coaches. Sometimes he was overly critical. That's the only kind of critique I ever heard anybody say about Billy Packer was that sometimes he was overly critical of what was going on on the, on the floor. Yeah. Other than that. If anybody had a chance to go back and look at the 1970, take a look on YouTube or something, the 79 final between Michigan State and Indiana State, and you have Dick Enberg, who is the the absolute apex of broadcasting any sport, whether it's he did a bunch of Super Bowls, he did a bunch of, he did some Final Fours, he was the lead voice of UCLA basketball during the height of their dynasty years. You know, he did everything that you can imagine for NBC. Joining him in the booth with those two was Al McGuire, who's the absolute mm-hmm. opposite broadcasting wise of yeah. Packer. He would make jokes. He would be he's very precocious, very funny, making slide comments about different coaches and different players and with all in good taste. And he was just so, and he worked in at, at CBS for a long time after when CBS got the rights to broadcast the final four, but it was just a, a contrast of styles that's worked so well together, especially doing that game, which is still the highest rated college basketball game of all time. Uh, Andrew and I have talked in the past, uh, and I'm going to use a name that Dana might not be familiar with, but I, I apologize for that. Uh, Mike Francesa, who was the... Um, oh, I love Mike. I'm from the South, but I know about Mike Francesa. <laughs> I'm from the South. I'm from South Louisiana, live in Atlanta, but I know all about Mike Francesa, trust so, me. So Mike and the Mad Dog, you know, that sort of was the formative years of our sports fandom growing up in the 90s. And so either Francesa or Chris Russo, his longtime partner, who we, you know, who both are still active in one way shape or form their names come up with some um some frequency on our podcast and francesa who actually worked uh at cbs sports doing a lot of college basketball stuff late 80s early 90s and worked with billy packer he said that packer watched the games with a red pen which Mm -hmm. i thought was an interesting way to put it to sort of exactly to what you were just saying dana this this idea that it was he he focused on the negative and it worked for him 
but it was something people noticed. Yeah, it was like a lot of people kind of like was like, you know how you would hear somebody say something in a negative light. Mm-hmm. And then the, you automatically would be like, either a sports fan or a former athlete. You'd be like, OK, how you you know, like, yeah, you could say that. But what have you done, you know, to mm-hmm. say stuff like that? You know what I mean? So that's kind of like what the kind of like what a lot of people felt, I guess, of his of his style. Um, now, I'll tell you this. When I was in college, I was fortunate enough to work at a radio station in Baton Rouge. And uh, as an intern. And when my internship was up, they actually offered me a job. Mm-hmm. Okay. And a f- actual job on the weekends on, on air. So I was like, okay, cool. He said, also, we know that you, you know a lot, of, a lot about sports. You played high school football. You, you know, you've done a lot of, you know, a lot about sports. We're going to be doing, we're going to be starting, to, we will start to broadcast in the fall high school football on the radio. And also high school basketball. Mm-hmm. And they asked me, uh, would you want to be a part of that as a color analyst? And I'm like, I jumped at the chance, obviously. <laughs> of course. And so that fall came around. So I had like maybe about maybe three months to get myself prepared and everything. And I watched a lot of tape of different color analysts. But the one that I watched the most of and learned the most from was Billy Packer. Mm-hmm. And a lot of my style, it was his style. Now, I wasn't overly critical, you know, about that. But his style, his delivery, and his wordplay was incredible. One thing that I, one of the things, one of the moments I remember with him broadcasting when he was with CBS was the 97 National Championship game, which is one of the underrated great finals we had, which was Kentucky against Arizona. Yeah. And that was when the overtime Kentucky had this amazing comeback in the final couple minutes. The tie descended to overtime. And at the end of this game, when Arizona finally clinched it, you know, Jim Nance had Jim Nance was saying that Arizona gets over the hump and they finally win a championship for Lute Olsen. And holding the ball at the end of the game was the tournament most outstanding player, who was Miles Simon. And right almost on cue. Billy Packer simply says, <laughs> Simon says, championship. <laughs> and I was like, that was perfect, you know. And I was a big Arizona fan, mostly because a lot of my friends said I resemble Mike Bibby. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, oh, okay. You know, and I looked at him, mm-hmm. I finally saw him. I'm like, oh, you're kind of right. I do kind of look like him. But anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, so so that was an amazing, amazing game, and that was just a perfect, perfect way to sum up that '97 final. It was a time when his uh, when his glibness worked for him a little bit. Sort of the yeah. three the three simple words. The other thing I want to mention, uh, I didn't I took this? Uh, I found this. I was not aware of these stories from his New York Times obituary. As a lot of these uh, sports broadcasters and others are, he was kind of a kind of an interesting man. Uh, Billy Packer. He he uh, he did some interesting things, including trying to. Um, he was an art collector. He also uh, hired a psychic to try and find the knife uh, that was used in the uh, the Nicole Brown Simpson uh, Ron Goldman murders. I did hear that. I did is, hear about that. Yeah, which is a little strange. He also um, and and his, his obituary in the New York Times describes this as a quote entrepreneurial streak in the '95 Final Four. Uh, uh, during the the warmups, or maybe it was even practice, so maybe it was even you know hours before the game, um, 
Bryant Reeves from Oklahoma State, uh, known big as country Big Country Reeves, yeah, Big Country, who uh, had, I guess, sort of a, a not not a great NBA career, but you know, he had an okay NBA career. He was with the Vancouver Grizzlies. I always associate the Vancouver. Was, I think was he their first overall number one? Pick, I think he might have been. Pick? Yeah. I, and I always associate, there's one or two guys that when I hear about the Vancouver Grizzlies, I associate Bryant Reeves and uh, Michael Dickerson, Sharif Francis. Sharif Abdul-Rahim is the other one yeah. I was going to mention. So yeah, not, yeah, I'm Sharif Abdul-Rahim, right, yeah. They they were not good and they were not not well uh, well attended either. But nah. anyway, uh, during warm-ups, uh, Oklahoma State, uh, Bryant Reeves, uh, in dunking the ball, breaks the backboard. and I remember he, that right. They did. Billy Packer. Uh, went around picking up pieces of the backboard, the glass, putting it in his pocket, thinking that it might be worth some money. Um, NCAA officials uh, make him surrender those, but not to be deterred. Billy Packer finds the janitor, the custodian who had swept up the glass and takes more shards of glass and put them puts them in his pocket again thinking that maybe they'll be worth something uh, unfortunately oklahoma state loses and somebody asked uh packer months later what did you do with the shards he said ah oh, once they lost they were worthless i threw them out but uh probably not <laughs> a lot of sports broadcasters going around uh picking up shards of glass uh, from backboards thinking they might be worth something so billy packer Great broadcaster and sort of an interesting man as well. Dana, uh, we'll hear from you again later on in the show, but uh, thanks so much for joining us. Man, no problem, man. Love to be here. Thanks. Thank you, Dana. All right. Uh, Well, thanks to Dana for joining me to talk about legendary broadcaster Billy Packer. And uh, Andrew is back with me. And Andrew, why don't you tell us a little bit about Bobby Hull? Sure. Bobby Hull, born in 1939, passed away on January 30th. One of the most prolific scorers in hockey history, Hull led the NHL in goals seven times and won two MVP awards and a Stanley Cup with the Chicago Blackhawks, back when that was two words. He later moved on to the Winnipeg Jets of the World Hockey Association, where he won an additional two championships and two MVP awards. Not necessarily telling any tales out of school here, but Andrew and I are not the the most uh, the biggest hockey experts here. Andrew probably knows it a little more than I do. But Bobby Hull was one of those all time greats in the world of NHL hockey that we couldn't help but but sort of put him on. He was the third player in NHL history to uh, reach thirty goal. I'm sorry, to reach fifty goals. In a season, he is probably best known uh, on the ice as far as skills are concerned for having just an intensely hard and fast slap shot. They they clock it at between 97 and 120 miles an hour. And the Chicago Blackhawks, during that time period, not a team with a lot of great seasons. That's really their only championship for a very long time. And Bobby Hull is one of the big leaders on that team. Yeah, Hull starts there in the 57-58 season at 19 years old, and he's there all the way through 71-72 before, like you said, he goes to the World Hockey League for another bunch of years and then is back in the NHL briefly in 79-80 after with Winnipeg when they come into the NHL and then finishes with a few games with the Hartford Whalers. Um, But yeah, I mean, you look at he had a... 10 to 12 year period where he's, he's the, you know, first 
team all-star. He wins, you know, all the different trophies in the NHL. Um, most lists, if you look, and, you know, hockey's a little tough. Hockey's almost like basketball, or not basketball, like football, where it's very tough to meld the eras. And then there's so many different positions, especially if you're counting goaltenders and things like that, that some of these lists can vary wildly. You know, mm-hmm. baseball and basketball, the, the top 10 lists tend to be a little more consistent. Not that they're all identical, but, you know, Hull is is routinely in the no lower than the top 15. Most of the lists I saw, I had them, you know, between six and 10, depending on how how heavily weighted people did with some of the modern players. I'm talking about guys like Crosby and Ovechkin who are still playing and things like that. But, um, you know, for a guy whose career ended 50 plus years ago, before the NHL was really a national game and there's not a, you know, how much footage probably even still exists of him actually playing, you know, like full games or anything like that with the Blackhawks, Um, you know, still a guy who's regarded as one of the greatest players of all time. He's also responsible for what's called the Bobby Hull rule, which is that he, him and I guess Stan Makita also on the Blackhawks at the time, they were sort of the ones who, pioneer using very curved sticks mm-hmm. which, they, which became known as banana blades um the rule was banned because they said it was a danger to goalies because the pucks were so unpredictable and now there's specifically specific rules about the curvature of the stick and things like that but that's sort of the lasting uh impact from a uh, rules standpoint and i'm looking here and that that 61 61- team that's the from what i can tell and again not necessarily my full area of expertise that's the only stanley cup for the blackhawks between 1938 and 2010 so a period of what almost three quarters of a century that's their only championship and if you think about it the bulls didn't win anything till the 90s till the jordan era the 60s is right in the middle of very long droughts for the cubs and the the Cubs and the White Sox, the Bears won it in 63 also. So you have sort of those two Chicago teams winning for a lot. And then you don't really get another championship for another 20 years until the 85 Bears. So so for two decades, sort of, you know, as his career was winding down and then also once he's retired, that Blackhawks team is one of the last championship teams in Chicago history. So I'm sure that played a role in the esteem he was held among Blackhawk fans. And, you know, I've mentioned it before that the original six is a little bit of a misnomer, but, you know, there's no denying that there was a period for several decades where there were six teams in the NHL and any team that's one of those will always have sort of a special reverence within their city. You know, Mm -hmm. honestly, the Rangers probably least among them just because of the sheer sheer number of sports in New York. But you think about the Maple Leafs, the Montreal Canadiens, the Bruins, the um, Red Wings. And so the Blackhawks, you know, it's not to over not to be overlooked that they're, you know, an original six franchise. And he's, you know, widely considered one of the greatest, if not the greatest Blackhawk of all time. And we should probably also mention that his son is um, in in himself a a member of the Hall of Fame, uh, Brett Hull, who played in uh, 
played for a number of teams, not not Chicago, but he played for Calgary, St. Louis. St. Louis is probably where Brett Hull had his best years, if I'm if I'm uh, not mistaken. And so not a lot of father son duos in Halls of Fame, really, really in any sport. So in addition to being a great player himself, he was the sort of the the beginning of a, of a hockey dynasty with his uh, with his family. They're the only uh, father-son duo to win the Hart Trophy, which is the MVP of the NHL. Um, and then just, you know, again, the last thing, because I, I know there's a couple of guys later where we have to at least mention it. I think with Jim Brown later, we'll talk about it, but mm-hmm. became very famous or very infamous for multiple, multiple allegations of um spousal abuse and that i think they kind of rise past the point of allegations and then there's also a section in this that says pro-nazi comments which we don't need to get super into but um anytime there's a header like that on your wikipedia page (laughs) it's generally you know so again we don't usually use this as a time to sort of run guys down if they got a dui or if they you know went bankrupt or whatever but if there's sort of a persistent thing it feels disingenuous to not at least mention it yeah and unfortunately a couple of the guy i mean the comments you know a lot of times you know comments or whatever can be taken out of context or whatever so you know like you said don't dive too deeply into that but there are a couple mm-hmm. of guys for whom domestic violence was something that they were accused of over and over again and so like you said it's not what we like to dwell on here because we're about the sports and the games and the on the field or in this case on the ice but you meant you use the right word. It would be a little disingenuous not to at least mention it, but um, you know, it is something that's worth mentioning. It was something that's worth mentioning in all of his obituaries, but it's also worth mentioning that he's a guy who's got a statue outside the arena in Chicago, led the team to one of their only uh, Stanley cup victories for a very long mm-hmm. time. And is also, um, uh, you know, considered one of the all time, you know, dozen or so greatest players in NHL history. Absolutely. And we're going to move on and we're going to talk about Bobby Bethard, who was born in 1937 and died on January 30th. A member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame, Bethard served in the front office of four Super Bowl winning teams. He is best known as the general manager of the Washington Redskins during the 1980s, where he drafted future Hall of Famers Daryl Green, Art Monk and Russ Grimm. This team was really sort of uh, this this guy's uh, Beathard's career, I should say, was really sort of uh, all over the place. In 1983, when the Redskins won their first ever Super Bowl, 17 of the players uh, on that team were acquired by him. Interestingly enough, though, not a lot of it was done through the draft because I, I found this out in my research. Between 1978 and 1988, the Redskins had only three first round draft picks, which I thought I don't know the whole story behind this, but it's it's interesting. Yeah, and I see a um, this is from the Pro Football Hall of Fame write up of him. It says his visionary thinking would soon become a template for the NFL, where first round draft picks were weapons to be used in trades. His mm-hmm. keen sense for talent was apparent on each team, but especially in 1982, when the Redskins Super Bowl winning team included 27 free agents signed by Bethard since he joined the team. In his 11 years in Washington, the Redskins has had only three first round picks. The team went to the Super Bowl three times and won twice um this is now this, this is his quote on on uh, how he addressed uh, or how he um how he approached it and i think it gets to your point he said quote we did it a little different than a lot of people a lot of people in the league thought i was nuts maybe that was true because i started trading away first round draft picks 
and first round draft picks were valuable, but we figured if it was a draft that we had evaluated and it was rich in talent, we could get the players in the later rounds. Now, the Rams more recently did this where they really were aggressive in, in trading a bunch of their picks away. And it worked out. They won a Super Bowl two years ago. They beat Cincinnati in that Super Bowl. And, you know, they're they're paying the I'm talking about the Los Angeles Rams. The uh, they're paying the price for it a little bit now, although they're you know okay this year as we're recording this. But, you know, even now it's it's a very it's a very dicey thing because it it's almost assumed that if you're trading draft picks, you're being irresponsible and you're not thinking about the future. And in some cases you're not thinking about the future, but it's worth it to try to win a championship. You know, the Rams got their title, the length of the, um, the, the length of the success that Washington had, you know, really from the early eighties or late seventies to the mid nineties sort of belies the fact that you can't do it. Now the game's different. Now there's free agency. There's, you know, a hard salary cap, but what he was doing would be controversial now would be seen as a risky move now, let alone in the very staid conservative NFL of the early eighties. So, and just a little bit more on Beathard. First of all, he's not there for the, the final championship in 91, the, the Mark Rippin led team, the, the last championship of the Gibbs era he he has a little bit of a um uh little bit of a conflict with Gibbs and he ends up uh stepping aside because because of that um it, it says here and this is from a, a contemporaneous Washington Post article it says uh other recent Bethard Gibbs conflicts involve defensive tackle Dave Butts and free safety Todd Bowles or whatever that's <laughs> worth now the uh he's still the head coach in Tampa right Bowles uh, yeah, he took over after Arian stepped yeah, down. Yeah. So yeah, he is he is still the head coach. So he he leaves the Redskins. He's not with them uh, during their their third championship in '91. But just a, just a little bit, uh, a really interesting. He starts off as a scout with the Kansas City Chiefs. He's there for one year in the early '60s, and then back for a few years, including on the team that uh, wins the AFL title and goes to the first Super Bowl against the Packers in. 1966 with that great defense that has like six hall of famers. And then he goes to Atlanta for five years, four years, I should say. Then from 72 to 77, sort of right as they're starting to go to, to Super Bowls, he's the director of player of personnel for the Miami Dolphins, three straight Super Bowl appearances, two, two championships in a row, including the last, uh, the last undefeated season in NFL history. Then he goes right to Washington. He's there for a decade, makes three championship, makes three Super Bowls, wins two of them, tries to retire and go surfing. But then he's drawn out of retirement in 1990 <laughs> to go to the San Diego Chargers, which you forget that was also a Super Bowl team. Now they played against a vastly superior San Francisco 49ers team in that. Uh, what's that? The 94 Super Bowl. But he was associated <laughs> with that team, too. So the guys associated with four really good to great teams in NFL history in Kansas city, Miami, Washington, the big one, obviously. And then San Diego to close out his career. He started on a, he was associated with, you know, he was on the staff 
of a team that played in Super Bowl one against the Vince Lombardi Packers. And then he was the GM of a team that played in Super Bowl 29 against a team that had Deion Sanders on it. (laughs) It's an interesting way to sort of uh, to cap it. But obviously that, you know, it's hard to call what Washington did from 82 to 91 a dynasty because I'm kind of a believer in two dynasties can't be going on at the same time. And obviously that that 49ers run during that same time frame, you know, they also the Giants won two in that time frame. So it, it's tough to call it a dynasty. And I know he wasn't there for the 91 team, but obviously some of the pieces he acquired were there to win three Super Bowls with three different quarterbacks and, three, you know, it with three teams that were made up fairly differently is, um, you know, kind of a testament to turning a roster over in an era when that wasn't as easy to do because you couldn't just go grab tons of free agents every year. Yeah. And especially when you're trading away all your draft picks, (laughs) it makes it even harder. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, um, so that's Bobby Beathard. And uh, why don't we move on to uh, somebody else uh, from my neck of the woods from the DC area. And Andrew, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, who's up next? Sure. Ted Lerner born in 1925 died on February 12th. A real estate developer in the Washington, D.C. area, Lerner purchased the Washington Nationals in 2006. Under his ownership, the team made five playoff appearances in an eight-year stretch and won the 2019 World Series. So this is probably the individual who we're going to spend uh, the least amount of time on sort of most of his life because he was not um, somebody who spent most of his career really in sports. He, as a very, he died. He was um, he was almost a hundred years old when he died. He was ninety eight years of age when he passed away. And so he had actually, as a kid, gone to Griffith Stadium to see the original Senators play in the nineteen thirties. And and I think I saw in one of his obituaries that he might have even been a been a been a, been a, a bat boy or an usher or, or something like that. I'll, I'll look and see that I can find this find that but the the uh the senators that the second version of the senators moved to texas in the early 1970s and then dc was without a major league baseball team for over 30 years and as early as the early 1970s ted lerner had expressed interest in bringing a team to major league baseball now this is a you know different story for a different day, but in the early 2000s, things really start to go south in Montreal. The Major League Baseball actually has to buy the Montreal Expos from the from from the from the current owners, and then in two th- they move it to DC, and then in 2006 they sell it to Ted Lerner, and he is around long enough uh, later on in his tenure, his son, Mark is really the one who's running the team. And that's what continues uh, to this day, but he builds the beginning of this team. That is a world champion in 2019 and a, a a kind of a powerhouse that, like I said, like we say in the, in the little write up there, you know, a perennial playoff team uh, in the National League throughout the the teens. Yeah, and for the the previous owner in in um, in Montreal before Major League Baseball took it over was Jeffrey Loria, the one who then took over in Florida as the Marlins owner. Yeah, and then um, the Marlins owner went to Boston, and the Montreal got 
left out in the cold. Yeah, basically. Yeah. So they were a lame duck franchise and, and had been for a number of years. And if you remember the last couple of years, they were in Montreal, they were playing some games in San Juan, Puerto Rico, mm-hmm. but it was clear that, that something needed to happen and that there'd also been, you know, various attempts at bringing a team to DC in the past. One of the main obstacles to that was the Orioles being in their territory, the uh, New York Times obituary said, as as his wealth grew, Mr. Lerner sought without success to buy pro sports teams, including the American League's Baltimore Orioles and the NFL's Washington. It says Washington football team, formerly the Redskins are not even the Washington football team anymore. Uh, eventually purchased the Nationals for a payment of four hundred fifty to made four hundred fifty million to Major League Baseball. And, you know, the thing with the Nationals is and they're bad now. But like you said, they they got good. You know, they they came in, they had that one really surprising year, their first year there where they were in first at the All-Star break, and then they were bad for several years, but they were essentially the equivalent of an expansion team. There wasn't much. I think they had Jose Vidro when they moved, but like they had been basically run at an absolute, you know, dollar store level when they were in Montreal. So it's not like he took over the Nationals were really anything more than an an, ex, an expansion team and if we've as we've seen the history of recent expansion in major league baseball is a mixed bag mm-hmm. um you know the marlins won the two championships but everything else has been a disaster the uh rays are a very very good team after 10 years of being horrible but they play in a stadium that's a joke nobody goes to see them the Diamondbacks are probably the the pick of the litter of recent expansion because of how you know they were in the World Series this year. They've had more bad years than good, but they're you know they don't embarrass themselves as a franchise. And then the Rockies have struggled to be anything but a last place team. So coming out of the gate and within three or four years or five or six years, whatever it was, the team being becoming a perennial playoff team, a viable team, and also again they moved into a marketplace with a saturated, you know, there were a lot of entrenched fan bases there and they were able to carve out a fan base in DC of, you know, to where they're, you know, they draw when they're decent, especially they draw. Well, there's, there's enough national fans to support a team and, you know, go watch them on TV and things like that. Yeah. And they were really, really good from starting in 2012. This is, these are their win totals for those, uh, was that? I guess it would be eight seasons uh, starting in 2012, 98, 86, 96, 83, 95, 97, down to 82 in 2018, and then up to 93 in the championship year. So he he was there. He was uh, still still around and with it enough to attend the parade. He said 95 years is a long time to wait, which was referencing uh, not his own age because he was a couple years younger than that. But the fact that the the uh, Washington hadn't had a baseball championship since the senators in 1924. And he was active enough to that. He was actually the one negotiating Bryce Harper's contract with him in person in Florida in 2018 and early 2019 uh, before Harper signed with the Phillies. So he stayed around and involved with his team up until, uh, up until almost the very end. And there's a chance that within a few years, the nationals would be the only team that plays in DC proper with the news that the, 
Wizards and Capitals are moving out, and who knows what ends up happening with the Commanders eventually. But as of now, they play in Landover, Maryland. So it's going to be very interesting to see how that all plays out here in the the DMV, as we call it. Uh, Let's move on to uh, another baseball-related figure, and that is Tim McCarver, who was born in 1941 and passed away on February 16th. A two-time World Series winner and two-time All-Star as a catcher with the St. Louis Cardinals, McCarver batted 478 in the 1964 World Series victory over the New York Yankees. In his later years, he was best known as the personal catcher for Hall of Famer Steve Carlton. After retirement, McCarver worked as a baseball analyst and would broadcast a record 23 World Series. And I was surprised, and I'm sure we're going to talk a lot about his broadcasting, but I was surprised at the length of his career as a player. Um, You know, if you just look at the years, it spanned 1959 to 1980. Now, 59, 60, 61, he only played in in a handful of games. And then 63 was his first full year. And in 1980, he only played in a few games. But he he played in a, a pretty full season in 79. So even if you consider it just 63 to 79, that's a, a lengthy career, especially for a catcher. You know, never what was he just a couple of times he made an all star team as a player, but he was on those really good Cardinals teams in in that won championships in 64 and 67. Obviously, you know, he'd always have his stories about Bob Gibson and and stuff like that. And, you know, being the age I am, I'm much more familiar with him as a broadcaster, but. Before we get to that, we should obviously, you know, spend some time on his long career as, as a player. So the 1980 season with the Phillies, who are the eventual World Series championship Phillies, he's actually already retired and working as a broadcaster at this point. And then they must have had some need because they brought him back uh, to be with the team basically just through September. He appears in his first game in September 5th and his last game on October. I'm sorry, September 7th and his last game on October 5th. So his 1980 season is all of uh, I think it's six or seven games but yeah yeah he he was heavily recruited out of you know as a young as a young man he actually negotiates with the Yankees and the person who's the lead negotiator with Tim McCarver for the Yankees is Bill Dickey who's a, a an all-time <laughs> great catcher in his own right and but basically eventually the Cardinals outbid the the Yankees and uh, McCarver ends up with the Cardinals. He's the catcher for Bob Gibson uh, on those great teams. Uh, backed up memorably in 1964, the backup catcher on that 64 Cardinals team is actually Bob Uecker, uh, believe it or not. So t- <laughs> two all-time great uh, broadcasters. And then he stays with them for a while. Later on in the 60s, he's introduced to Steve Carlton, who he ends up uh, actually being teammates with three times. Uh, first in the in the sixties with the, the Cardinals. And then very briefly in 1972, when uh, Carlton signs with the Phillies, but then uh, McCarver gets traded to Montreal and then bounces around. He's actually uh God, How many 10 years does car does McCarver have with the Cardinals? Cause he he's back on the Cardinals the following year, but then he gets traded to Boston uh, for about basically like a year and a half. He's actually on the 75 Red Sox, the beginning of the 75 season, I guess as a, a backup to Carlton Fisk. And then he goes back to the, 
back to the Phillies uh, or goes to the Phillies, I should say, from 75 uh, all the way through to, to 1980. From 76 to 79, he catches Tim uh, Steve Carlton in 90 straight games. I think Carlton and McCarver might be the winningest pitcher-catcher duo in history. Yeah, I think his his quote was something with Carlton. He said basically they're going to be buried sixty feet six inches apart because mm-hmm. they were in such sync when they when they pitched. And Carlton, I guess, credited him with learning to pitch inside because he had always been sort of hesitant to do that. And McCarver kind of forced him to by setting up inside constantly. He forced uh, Carlton to become better at uh, you know and, and and see add that to his his repertoire. And I'm just curious here. I want to see how many of uh, how many of, of of Carlton Cy Youngs is McCarver a teammate for? So, uh, so maybe maybe not as many as I would think. Seventy two in Philly. That's when McCarver leaves mid year to go to Montreal, uh, and then really really only seventy seven because by the early eighties McCarver's gone. So okay, so so only one of. Uh, only one of the three, but but nonetheless, McCarver, a big part of uh, of Steve, of Hall of Famer Steve Carlton's career. And uh, j- just give me one second here. I want to I want to look something up. It's not going to load. Um, if, if if I can if it'll load, I'll come back to it. And then the other thing is is you know we probably remember him mostly as a broadcaster. Yeah, he did. I guess he started with the Phillies after he retired, you know, that same year in 80, uh, moved to the Mets in 83, where he was the Mets. Uh, He did the local Mets broadcasts for 16 seasons, 83 to 98, did the Yankees for a couple of years, which always seemed a little out of place. And uh, then he did the Giants for a season, but that also happened to be the 02 season when the Giants went to the World Series. Um he also was, you know, when the NF and MLB on Fox became, you know, the main broadcast starting in 96, it was him and Joe Buck. So he called I think the World Series pretty much every year, but maybe one or two from 1996 until 2013. I think NBC had a couple of those early, maybe 97 and 99. And then that was it. Fox had the rest of them. Does that sound right? Yeah. They, for, for, for the late 90s, they alternated back and forth. And so. Yeah, 96, 98, and 2000 were Fox. 95 mm. and 97 was NBC. And the, and the they would, you know, the other network would have the, you know, the LCS, you know, one of the LCSs and everything. But then, yeah, but it, and then in 2000 um, was the last year NBC had any baseball. And then after that, it was basically all Fox and McCarver. So he McCarver did the World Series every year. So he did some really good World Series. And he called all those Yankee games that we remember as kids and it always seemed like he wasn't thrilled with the Yankees. If we're, if we're being honest, I, I guess I just looked at him between his national league history and being the Mets broadcaster. I know he did Yankee games for a few years, but as a kid, I was always like, Oh, McCarver hates the Yankees, but you know, who knows if that was actually true or not, but yeah, he was, I think a guy that, you know, anytime you're in the national spotlight as a broadcaster and all you have to do is look at Joe Buck doing the games with him. People just find reasons to critique you or not to like you. But the fact is, if they had somebody they thought was universally better, they'd be in there. So having that longevity as a national broadcaster is is pretty incredible to say nothing of. You know, I know there's a whole generation of Mets fans that kind of grew up or 
I spent the better part of 20 years, including those really good late 80s teams, the 86 World Championship team, with McCarver calling the games on, uh, you know, whatever channel it would have been at that point. And I always, you know, a lot of people criticized him and he, he could be not so great. Sometimes he would just sometimes say some things that were, I don't know, maybe not logical. Um, You know, he would, he would get names wrong players, names wrong. Sometimes I remember, you know, he, he famously said that in a Red Sox Yankee series, Pedro Martinez would be pitching against Brandon Arroyo and Joe Buck had to, uh, comment that not only was Brent Brent Brendan Arroyo's real name Bronson, but he and uh, Pedro Martinez were on the same team. So so that type of thing. And there was even like a famous uh, Family Guy cutaway where Brian Brian the dog says, "Well, I couldn't be as bad at this as Tim McCarver is at baseball sportscasting." And they you know they show McCarver just kind of saying something something nonsensical. But he he understood the game. Catchers really do make some of the best announce not only do they make some of the best managers, but they also make some of the best uh, broadcasters because they understand pitching. They understand hitting, they understand fielding. So there was a whole website once upon a time that was just devoted to Tim McCarver's uh, terrible, terrible quotes, but I, I can't find it now, which, which is fine. So, but I never thought he was, he had his moments, but I, th- I actually thought by and large, he was pretty good. Yeah, and and I, I think again, especially if you're watching high-profile games, you tend to get mad at the announcers because of if your team is playing, because you just can't help it. Um, I know Joe Buck has famously retweeted quotes of people getting mad at him for his call of games he's not even calling before. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, oh, they're like, you know, it's just people just that's how they know how to react is to just get mad at a broadcaster. But you know, the guy for 50 years, essentially, actually probably a little longer than 50 years, was involved either as a player or a broadcaster in baseball. And, you know, the NFL Network has the the special called the football life. I guess Tim McCarver would be a good example of a baseball life in terms of being a part of basically every Major League Baseball season since the early 60s. Yeah, absolutely. That, that That's absolutely right. Okay, so uh, moving right along, uh, we have another uh, honoree and another uh, another guest here uh, here on the 2023 In Memoriam special. And uh, why don't I turn it over to Andrew first and you can uh, tell us who we're going to talk about. Sure. Bud Grant, born in 1927, died on March 11th. Grant coached the Minnesota Vikings for 18 seasons, leading the team to four Super Bowl appearances and 11 division titles. He was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 1994. And we are pleased to have with us uh, one of the first guys who who did this with me. I think uh, I, the first year I did this was 2020. For shouldn't say first year we did this, although I think it was just me interviewing him that year. The first guy. Uh, He's been joined us, joined us as a guest basically every year since we've been doing this. And this is that's uh, Jeremy McFarlane of the Football is Family podcast. Jeremy, uh, welcome and uh, thanks for doing this again. Thanks for inviting me on. So, uh, Bud Grant, what uh, what made you want to come on and talk about Bud Grant? Bud Grant is, uh, you know, I, I grew up in the Tennessee area, so I didn't have a lot to do with the Vikings. But when I've gotten into the history of the NFL, you go back 
in reality, you go back to the sixties to really get the modern NFL feel or feel to it. It just, Mm -hmm. it really starts in the sixties and Bud Grant pops up everywhere you go. And he really is the Marv Levy of his time because of his Super Bowl appearances and the fact that he didn't win any, but no one could doubt his ability as a coach and a motivator of men. And when I when I think about Bud Grant, he is the first thing that pops up when I think of the Vikings. I mean, you think, well, they had great teams, but Bud Grant is really the beginning of it. And it's funny because in my notes, one of the first things that I have there is parallels with Marv Levy, because not only did he lose the four Super Bowls, but he also like Marv Levy had a successful career in the Canadian football, uh, the CFL before that. Yes. So there's there's a there's a couple of different parallels there between Bud Grant and Marv Levy. What what I like about this is, and and the difference I guess between Marv Levy and and Bud Grant, at least in in the quarterback thing, is Bud had two quarterbacks that made that helped him make it to the Super Bowl. Marv Levy had one. I don't know if that makes one better than the other, but it's just interesting to see. Uh, to see that as well. But when I was looking at Bud Grant today, and I was looking at him earlier, but I didn't know this. And I started watching a lot of uh, YouTube films leading up to this. And I kept hearing this 40 for 60 come up. I was like, well, what does that mean? 40 men for 60 minutes. And Bud or, or uh, he was known as Bud. That was not his name, but he, uh, he made it so that people would look, and take ownership of a team. I mean, it's like 40 men for 60 minutes, very similar to George Allen, what he would say. But I liked it so much that I dug into it a lot deeper. And if I and if I got this wrong, I want to make sure I get it right. Joe, Joe Cap, who was the quarterback from Canada, or I say Canada, he was from Canadian, he was from <laughs> Canada, um, was his quarterback in 1969 when they went to the first Super Bowl. They got beat by the Chiefs that year. I believe, and I might be wrong on this, so correct me on this, fellas. That they want he won the team MVP. Yeah, you're you're the story you're telling is accurate. So please, okay, okay, because I want to make sure I got that right. Mm-hmm. And he gave it up. He did not accept it because of the forty for sixty. That tells me number one, if you receive a award, man, how hard it is to turn it down for any reason? But number mm-hmm. two, the entire team cheered him for doing it. Because they bought into Bud Grant and what he stood for in just a short period of time there in in Minnesota. If that doesn't, yeah, and he was he was what their second head coach. They with Norm Van Brocklin had been the head coach for the first couple of years when they came into the league, and I think he had been the the Winnipeg coach at the start of the the CFL too. Yes, he was. Yeah, so he had he had ex- experience with very new franchises. Um, obviously he would stay with Minnesota to for a lot longer than that. But um, you know, he yeah, it says he took over in, in March of 67. So the you know, Van Brocklin, I guess, had been there for what five or six years, and then he uh he takes over. And the one thing I'll say, like if you look the you mentioned the Chiefs, and the 69 Chiefs were kind of a one-year team. If you look at the other three teams they lost Super Bowls to. They lost to the 73 Dolphins, who were coming off of a third straight Super Bowl appearance. They'd been undefeated in 1972. They were whatever they were in 73, but only a hair less dominant. 
Then they lost to the 74 uh, Steelers at the start of the Steel Curtain. And then two years later, the 76 Raiders, who were the, you know, the John Madden, Oakland Raiders, perennial champion contender team. So, yeah, there's lots of highlights out there in NFL films of them looking pretty inept in four Super Bowls. But three of them are against three of the sort of dominant either dynasties or mini dynasties that ever existed in the modern NFL. So you could do a lot worse than losing to those teams. It's the magic of editing too. It really is. It's the magic of editing. I I, I look at those, I look at those teams in the seventies and, and Fran Tarkenton is really the, the, the big focal point of that. Uh, But the purple people leaders and, and what he did with people who, who he had is just, it's just amazing, and, and that team should have at least won a Super Bowl. But you're right; they went up against the Chiefs. They mm-hmm. probably could have beat, but I think that they were there was such momentum from the Jets Super Bowl the previous year that. But going up against the Dolphins and the Raiders and the Steelers, good luck with that. Good luck with that. Those teams were incredible. That doesn't diminish. And this is the thing about people said about Marv Levy: was he deserving of the of the Hall of Fame? Yes. <laughs> you go to the Super Bowl four years in a row, you are deserving of the Hall of Fame. Well, people, if I remember correctly, people thought the same thing about Bud Grant. Listen to this. Listen to this. And, and this is this is the internet says it's says it's the case, so it's true. He had a six, <laughs> he had a 0. 0.607 winning percentage. Mm-hmm. It that's incredible. Does that tell you something? He won 168 games, lost 108. That's really, really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the CFL, good gracious, he had a, a, a 0.64 winning percentage. That's even better. I love yeah, that, story that average, the Go NFL ahead. average is out to a 12 and four season every year using a 16 game framework. I know most of his coaching was before that, but you know, that's that's a pretty good year to average that every single year is uh, is pretty damn good. And, and you look at the talent on his team, yeah, he had a pretty dominant front four. And maybe front seven and a great quarterback, but really, do you know of too many more people on that team? And I think no. especially, especially on the offensive side, two Hall of Fame uh, linemen who played next to each other and were both yeah. maybe they didn't play I'll next to that. each other. Uh, Mick Tinglehoff and uh, who was a an honoree on Hello Old Sports uh, in memoriam a couple of years back passed away, and then Yale. Uh, is it Yale Larry, I believe is his name. Um, I apologize if I, if I got that wrong. So, but, but as far as like the skill positions, the running backs and receivers, the only receiver I can name from those teams is Ahmad Rashad. And I only know him because of the fact that he was that NBA broadcaster all those years later and married the wife on the Cosby show. So I, you know, I wouldn't know him probably either. So yeah, you're absolutely right about that. He, he did do a lot with the team, at least offensively that other than Tarkenton didn't have a ton of offensive weapons or at least not offensive weapons that are guys who've let, whose legacies ha- have stood the test of time. You know, that's, that's the thing about the defense though. The defense was so, and I love this. I love this fellas. Um, he, he really played up and I cannot remember the name of the stadium, the open air stadium there in Minnesota. Um, Correct me, I'm 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 completely off on that, but it was cold and there will be snow on the ground. And he said, "You do not get to have heaters there. You <laughs> deal with it." And this is this is the neat this this man is he's he's a legend. He is out there 
in the middle, you know, Minnesota let him come to any game that they wanted to. He would go to games that were open air. People, the the big old burly linemen were wearing coats, and he's out there in short sleeve shirts. Mm-hmm. This guy's a legend and a leader of man. What I found, and and again, I might, I apologize. Today has been kind of a rough day at home, but I, I might be off on this. Uh, you find that there'll be less coaches who are dominant in the late 90s to early 2000s to now, you might find a handful like Andy Reid or, or Bill Belichick or even Kyle Shanahan coming up, things like that. Mm-hmm. You'll find less coaches to be the dominant figure. But if you go back to the 90s, you go back to the 80s, you have Dicka, and you go back to the 60s and 70s, you had people like Bud Grant and 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 other, other guys, you know, other guys like that. You will find that more court, uh, coaches during then that would lead a team by the by sheer force of will. And I think Bud Grant was one of those guys. First of all, just a correction. I, I mixed up two guys. Yale Larry was a defensive back for the Lions in the 50s. Hall of Famer. I was talking about Ron Yary, Y-A-R-Y, <laughs> Hall of Fame tackle for the Vikings in the tomato, 1970s. Tomato. So my, my, apologize, my apologies there. Um, one of the interesting things I thought about Grant was that he was sort of a disciplinarian without being a yeller. I read in my research that he he doesn't yell. He feels like the players start to tune tune you out if you yell at them. But he did things like, um, excuse me, like have requiring the players to have national anthem practice yes. to show yeah. how they would stand <laughs> during the national anthem. So he was a disciplined guy, maybe without being a yeller, which is kind of rare. You know, you get guys who are yeller. I mean, I guess you can maybe put like a Belichick, but. But even Belichick's more of a tactician than he is a, a, you know, a disciplinarian to have a guy who's known for the discipline part of football, who's got that sort of Lombardi Parcells attitude, but was not a yeller, not a screamer, that that's a different type of thing. Tony Dungy. Yeah, Dungy might be another one. Yeah. 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 That kind of guy. And, And the thing about it is when I was listening to him talk, he is very he was very mild mannered. He was humble. But he was good. And I was reading up on his past. He had polio. I didn't mm-hmm. know that. This man, when he was younger, had polio during the time. My grandmother tells me tells me about this time. It was awful. You had a, you know, Hickman County, you had to stay away from water holes. You just couldn't go there because of polio. He had it. And they said in order for him to become, you know, to be functional, he learned how to he played baseball. He played basketball. He played football. If I read this correctly on the Minnesota Vikings website, he had five interceptions in one game playing in Canadian football. That's five. Why in the world would you throw out a guy who has one interception? <laughs> and now you give him two, three, four, five. And Bud Grant, and he was drafted by the Minneapolis Lakers. Come on. Mm-hmm. Come on. He won a championship with the yeah, Minneapolis it, it, Lakers. <laughs> yeah. And he said the only reason he left, he left the um the NFL for the Philadelphia Eagles is because the Canadian football league played him $10,000 a year instead of seven. Yeah. And this guy had his way and he was a coach and humble. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, go ahead, Andrew. I just had one anecdote because I, I, this was ringing a bell to me and I wanted to look it up. So you talked about the Vikings playing outside. The Vikings played at Metropolitan Stadium from 61 until 80 or 81. Then they played at the Metrodome and they now play at whatever it's called now, maybe U.S. Bank Field. There was a two year gap where they had to play outside 
at the University of Minnesota while yes. the Metrodome was destroyed and they were rebuilding the new stadium. Stroke of luck, good fortune, whatever, they end up winning the division one of those years. And this they is host about a six, playoff. Seven, this is about six, seven years yeah. ago. They host a playoff game at the end of the 2015 season at the Minnesota Golden Gopher Stadium outside. Bud Grant, who is 88 years old, shows up to the game, I believe goes out for the coin toss. It was a freezing cold day. I remember the Vikings kicker missed a chip shot at the end of the game. He shows up to this game in January in Minneapolis. It's, you know, whatever, 10 below zero wind chill, short sleeve shirt. Okay, that's, <laughs> that, was the, that, that was the game that I was referencing. I didn't know the exact game. This is a legend. Down here in Tennessee, I would be bundled up because we don't handle cold very well down here in Tennessee. <laughs> this guy's walking out there like, what is the deal? We don't use heaters it, here in Minnesota. We don't. It was it was minus six degrees, and he went outside for the uh, national anthem. Or he, stayed, he went out for the coin toss and the national anthem and stood there in his shirt sleeves at nearly 90 years old. So, well. Yeah, quite a legend. And uh, Jeremy, we appreciate you coming on to to talk to us about him for a few minutes. Uh, before we let you go, Jeremy, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, football as family? Well, we're we're going into the uh, fourth calendar year and probably looking at a little bit of rebranding, but I'm enjoying the process so far of talking to people. I I look for regular people, you know, authors, whatever it may be, but regular people who want to talk about their team and what makes them special to you? And I've had a lot of people on recently that that have shown me, uh, you know, have opened my eyes to a lot of things that it does not have to be technical. It's just a feeling that you have and why you have that feeling. And and that's the goal. I've had y'all on. And, and I remember we talked about the Giants that day. And mm-hmm. I, remember, I remember that. Um, I'm working. I would love to have every team on, but, you know, it, it may not happen. But I've had people talk about high school football, college football. Uh, I had a cancer survivor on recently talking about what football meant to him during his cancer treatment. Um, I had a guy talking about mental health and and how he liked how football, the Chicago Bears in, in particular, helped him out. So it, it's a lot of stuff that football is not just a game. It, it's a life. And sometimes it's a lifestyle that you don't understand until somebody explains it to you. Yeah. And we we always enjoy We enjoyed being guests a couple of years ago. And I always enjoy and always enjoy listening, Jeremy. So, uh, Thanks as always. Like I said, uh, you, you and Darren, I think, are the the two guys who've done this every year with us since the beginning. So uh, can't tell you how much we appreciate that. And uh, Merry Christmas to you. And uh, oh, Merry thanks Christmas. as always. And by the way, the best Christmas present I got was the Monday night game against the Dolphins. You're, you're going to be putting this out later on. But that Monday night game made me lose even more hair than I've already lost. <laughs> hey, we we had a good night on Monday night as well. So you did. With the, uh, with the Giants uh, right at the same time. So <laughs> you did. Let me ask you a real quick question. Are you going to keep your quarterback? Or are you going to worry about bringing Danny Dimes back? Do you have a Brock Purdy? Uh, I think they're both going to be on the team next year. And I don't think either of them is the long-term answer. So, <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. And that was funny the other night too, because we watched the game, we watched the giants and then uh, my wife and I went to sleep. She's like, Oh, should we turn the other game on for a couple minutes? And I said, no, I'm tired. It's going to be a long week. Like, let's turn it off. They're not going to win. And then the next morning, I saw that the Titans had come back and won, and I was like, "Gee!" So two two upsets on Monday night, uh, whatever night that would have been, December eleventh. Jeremy, uh, Merry Christmas to you, and thanks so much as always. Thank you.
All right, uh, back to just Andrew and me, and uh, we have we have a Yankee uh, for the for the first time to uh, this year. And uh, why don't you tell us about him, Andrew? Sure. Joe Pepitone, born in 1940, passed away on March 13th. Best known for his quirky personality, Pepitone's best years were with the New York Yankees in the 1960s, where he won three gold gloves at first base and made three all-star teams. I don't know where to start here. This is just... In my mind, I keep in mind that this happened almost two decades after I was, you know, before I was born. I don't know. Maybe you'll agree. Pepitone kind of gets associated with the end of the Yankee dynasty. Um, Not just his on the field play, but sort of his, his attitude, his, his prickliness, uh, you know, some of the, some of his off the field antics, not that other players, you know, prior to him didn't have off the field antics, but he was a guy who, you know, I think it was either after he had signed with the Yankees or shortly before, I think it was after he had signed with them. He got shot by a friend of his, uh, who they were playing around with just like a handgun as a teenager. And he got shot at his chest, um, in native New Yorker loved by the women, um, famous for being the guy who introduced the hairdryer to, to major league baseball, and then sort of kind of becomes a malcontent, uh, later in his career in the sixties, um, with the Yankees and kind of gets drummed off the team to the point where he says he doesn't even like baseball, doesn't even want to be a, be around baseball anymore. At one point, Ralph Houck threatens to punch him because he just doesn't know what else to do to get him to, to, to play well. Cause he's just so frustrated with him. So there's just a lot, a lot there with Joe Pepitone. Yeah, the the lead thing of his obituary in the a- AP report said Joe Pepitone, an all-star and gold glove first baseman on the 1960s New York Yankees, who gained renown for his flamboyant personality, hair pieces, and penchant for nightlife, died. He was 82. And what you said is almost one of the things I had exactly written, which is that he came in at the tail end. He was there in 1963. He had, you know, the Yankees basically from 1923 until 1964 were one long, uninterrupted dynasty, basically. So he was there at the tail end of it. And you're right. It's it's a good example of you see like, OK, he's there. So like when you look back, it's like, oh, by the time Pepitone was there, it was coming to an end, basically. Um, he he comes up to the ahead. Yankees in 1962 with mm-hmm. uh, a number of guys who were sort of the next and in a lot of ways the last great wave of players on the Yankee farm system, and including Jim Bouton, uh, you know, the famous Jim Bouton, author of Ball Four, who passed away a couple of years ago. Uh, Phil Linz, who was uh, known as Super Sub, who was um, a utility infielder for the Yankees uh, for from uh, from 62 to 65 and then Tom Tresh who in, in in retrospect is probably the best of them Tresh who who actually is is um a a big part of the team in in 1962 plays in 157 games um and, and bats uh bats 286 with with 20 home runs and uh is I think second on the team in RBIs as a rookie so it's all those guys sort of coming up at once Tresh Linz Bouton Pepitone, Linz, Bouton, and Pepitone, who were all friends and all um, 
got into trouble together on the road, went out drinking, went to bars, you know, chased women, all of that type of thing. They room Pepitone in 1962 with Bill Scourin, who's the current first baseman. Scourin does his best to try and keep Pepitone under control, actually locks him out of the hotel room one night. So Pepitone hangs around, doesn't play in the World Series in 62. Yankees win their last championship, but then they trade Scourin to the Dodgers before the 63 season uh, to make Joe Pepitone the starting first baseman. And Joe Pepitone says, I'm watching TV. And they flashed this across the screen that that Bill Scourin has been traded to the Dodgers. And the first thing I could think uh, was, uh, boy, I hate to see Moose go, ah, but F him. So that was sort of <laughs> that. That was kind of the Joe Pepitone, um, the Joe Pepitone, uh, life philosophy in a nutshell. The guy does have uh, some good years, as you know, sixty three. He hits two seventy one, uh, makes his first all star all star team. Following year, probably his best year as a pro. Uh, second time as an all star. Um, Hits uh he only hits two fifty one but uh, hundred RBIs twenty eight home runs uh, both or I guess actually the the twenty eight home runs is actually not a career high, um and that's the last plays in one hundred and sixty games that's the last great year of the Yankees but he was just known as a guy who in a lot of ways was kind of a a screw up I think it's in the sixty four World Series he's playing first base and he he loses track of the ball uh in in the in the crowd uh on a um on a on a ball that's being thrown to him. Let me see if I can find the um find the exact uh find the exact notation for that. But yeah, good player, not a great player, but a good player, but unfortunately has also been very uh very much associated with the demise of the of the Yankees in the mid 60s. Yeah. And it's not like he caused that. He was, he was, you know, just there at the, at the end of it. And 63 to 65 was, you know, had some, had some good years in 63 to 65, but um, yeah, it's sort of like, he's sort of representative of the end. Like Horace Clark sort of gets the, the years, the Yankees were bad in the late sixties and early seventies get known as the Horace Clark years, which he's like somehow become representative of those bad Yankee teams the Joe Pepitone years would encompass sort of the decline of the dynasty into what we saw in what became known as the Horace Clark years. He was also very well known as, as a, a guy who cared a lot about his hair. Um, Jim Bouton in, in ball four said Pepitone went nowhere without a bag containing hair products for his rapidly balding head and that he eventually took to wearing toupees. So a guy who I think was considered somewhat vain or I guess very vain, um, you know, and, 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 and in a way that's become emblematic of, uh, of the, the changing times for the Yankees. Did you have something you wanted to, uh, to add? Uh, just looking at a story about how he and uh, one of his one of his teammates, um, I, I think this was in the majors. They um, they uh, they had they as a gag, they held up a uh, a car car repair shop that they both um, that they both hung out at quite a bit. And the owner had to talk the police out of arresting the two of them because they were uh, it was just a joke. <laughs> um, there was one other. There was one other thing. Um, bu- 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 bu. 
and you Freddie, but because you guys obviously can't see this, um, he is Pepitone posed nude for Foxy Lady magazine in 1975. And my brother is actually looking at that magazine right now, trying to to find if there's any salient details. So when when Elston Howard was traded to the Red Sox in 1967, uh, Pepitone uh, jokingly said to Elston Howard, get me traded. And Elston Howard said, you're doing a pretty good job of it yourself. <laughs> you don't need help. So and yeah, he ultimately it, did end up getting traded where to the Cubs. He's on the Cubs. He's I think he's in Houston for a little while. He he sort of bounces around the National League. Yeah, Houston and then the Cubs. And then it finishes out is uh, with with just with three games in Atlanta at 32 years old. And then I think he goes to Japan for a little while after that. I, I could be wrong about that, but no, nah, that might have been somebody else. But he definitely uh, he definitely was a guy who who bounced around. There was one more quote that I had here. Um, that issue of Foxy lady can be had on YouTube for 32 90 for 23 95 plus shipping and handling for anybody who's interested. I assume you mean eBay, not YouTube. Yes. eBay rather. Sorry about that. Um, on, uh, at some point, in, I think in 1965, uh, Mickey Mantle gets on the uh, the PA system on the bus and congratulates. He says, we just had an eight game homestand and Joe Pepitone didn't sleep a night of it at home. <laughs> so that's uh, <laughs> so uh, the other thing, too, uh, maybe just before we move off of Pepitone, is that uh, he was a guy who um, he actually switched positions with Mantle in 67 and 68 when Mantle's legs were tired and he, he, he couldn't play first, couldn't play center field anymore. He actually swaps positions and Pepitone goes out to center field and Mantle plays first base for his last two years in the major. So that's sort of another interesting note in, um, uh, in sort of in Yankee history. He's a part of the last years of Mickey Mantle in that way. And he, uh, he also had tree RBIs. <laughs> That's a reference to uh, Johnny Johnny Boy Soprano. Or no, it's not Johnny Boy. It's, it's Uncle, Uncle Junior. Junior yeah. Is that right? In the yeah. first in the first flashback episode of The Sopranos, uh, Uncle Junior comes up to the to the young you know Tony as a kid, and he said, "You see that game last night, Anthony Joey Pepitone Triabies." So he was, <laughs> but I mean, he was beloved. He was an an Italian from New York, so Italians from in New York and New Jersey loved Joe Pepitone. Yeah, there's lots of pictures of him up at pizza places still. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, maybe we should move on to somebody who was a little bit more uh, successful in New York sports. And Willis Reed, born in 1942, passed away on March 21st. As starting center and captain of the New York Knicks of the early 1970s, Reed led the team to three NBA finals and two world championships. In 1970, he was named league MVP, NBA finals MVP, and all-star game MVP, the only player to ever be so honored. His heroic return from injury in game seven of that year's NBA finals served as the catalyst for the Knicks first world championship. He was also named MVP of the 1973 NBA finals. Yeah. I mean, Willis Reed, uh, he's probably where would you, we've talked about him in various contexts before when we did our NBA all-time starting fives, when we did our episode earlier this year on the 1972, 73 
Knicks, which was uh, Reed's last full year as a player, and also um, the, the, his second of uh, second of two uh, championships and Finals MVPs with the Knicks. He's probably what would you say, maybe the third best player in Nick history behind Ewing and Clyde. Yeah, I think Clyde and, and Ewing are pretty clearly one two. Reed, uh, you'd almost have to put him as three. I would think at this point. I mean, how many Knicks have won MVPs? He's the only one. Yeah, exactly. Not not, and he was an All Star. What one, two, three, four, five, six, seven years in a row, seventy to seventy, sixty-five to seventy-one. He was an All Star. He's part of their only two championship teams. Captain of the only two championship teams that ever, only two teams that ever won championships for the Knicks. So I think you, yeah, I think he would probably be number three. Um, you know, it's it's almost it feels weird. Because we, for us to talk about Willis Reed, kind of is being Knicks fans, being New York sports history fans. Like you said, we've already done a couple of episodes that have brushed up on Willis Reed. You know, some of these guys we talk about, it's like we don't talk about Bobby Hull or Sal Bando all that often, but Reed is going to come up. Um, he is responsible for both the most iconic moment, and it, listen. I know people want to say like they just walked out of a tunnel. I get that. Well, you know, but we're doing an in memoriam here. He is responsible for both the most iconic moment in Nick's history and the most iconic moment in the history of Madison Square Garden. So yeah, he just walked a few feet down a tunnel, but that being the top line of his obituary is correct. You know, it was an amazing that's that's the top line right there, is is what happened in that that day in 1970. I've talked about this before when, and for those of you who don't know, this is 1970 game seven NBA finals Knicks having uh, lost, having won game five Reed gets injured. Then they lose game six to the Lakers. This is a Lakers team with Baylor West and Chamberlain that had nearly dethroned the Celtics the year before in Russell's last season. Reed is hurt. He limps onto the floor Baylor West and especially Chamberlain stop warming up. They turn, they look at Willis Reed. They Nick's uh, come out. Reed starts, doesn't even contest the tap, the opening tip against Will Chamberlain scores the first two baskets of the game. Clyde Frazier ends up having one of the, the greatest NBA finals games, especially game seven at all time. Nick's win the championship reads the MVP and he's the MVP that year. And I think I, I, I mentioned this, I think in the, um, yeah, he's he's all-star game MVP, league MVP, and finals MVP all in the same year. Nobody's ever done that before. I don't and I don't think anybody's ever done it um done it since either. And it's really sort of up there when you see like the greatest moments in NBA history named or when you see NBA moments included in the greatest moments in sports history. It's up there. It is one of the you know, it's always up there on that list of greatest moments. And he was also, he was the finals MVP in 73 as well when the Knicks beat the Lakers in a much less dramatic mm-hmm. series. So, you know, I wouldn't, I don't want to reduce the man's career to that, but I think we'd be, if it was anybody else, we would talk a good amount about that moment. So I don't want to just brush past it because we're Knicks fans and we want to be more substantive about it. Um, 
but he was also like you said, I mean, that those teams were so loaded that everybody behind Clyde Frazier almost seems like, you know, they were all sort of equal in terms of being the supporting cast. But in an era of, you know, he wasn't Russell, he wasn't Chamberlain, but he was a very dominant big man on just a level below them, basically. Had a very unique jump shot as a left handed center. And so you, you, even today, you kind of you can see video of him shooting that left handed jumper. It's for a center of the time. He was a good shooter. He was not like a Chamberlain or a Russell who did most of their work or even like a Wes Unseld who did most of their work inside. He was much more of a shooter. He could hurt you from, you know, 10, 10, 12 feet out. He's really the first Nick to join the dynasty. He's graft, drafted out of Grambling State, which is a, an HBCU and historically black college. Uh, in 1964, he's drafted um, He's drafted by the Knicks, and I just want to want to get a little bit of information on that team just to give you an idea. That they're coached by Eddie Donovan and Harry uh, Gallatin, who's a Hall of Fame Nick in his own right. He's the first one to, to come to that team. He joins a team um, with not a lot of names on it, although they do have a, a veteran uh, veteran shooting guard uh, who had formerly been with the Philadelphia Warriors on that team. If you know who I'm talking about. Oh, you talk about Tom Gola being Tom on that Go- team. Tom Gola, yeah. He, we, he, he was still on the on the Knicks in the mid mid sixties. Yeah, one of our very first early episodes is about Tom Gola. So so check it out. His his. His first sort of couple years with the team, he ends up in a in a Twin Towers type of situation with Walt Bellamy. We've talked about this before. Bellamy ends up getting traded. They bring in Dave DeBusher in the 68-69 season, and it's sort of off to the races. After that 69-70 season, he's sort of hampered by injuries. He He's hurt uh, for, for the 71. For, he, he plays, but he's hurt for the 71 playoffs. He's got an injured shoulder. The Knicks lose to Washington. And then he misses uh, almost all of the 71-72 season. Um, he, he plays only 11 games. Um, by this point, Jerry Lucas is on the team, and, and, and uh, Lucas is getting a lot of minutes, uh, another Hall of Famer um, in 71-72. But then in 72-73, Reed comes back, plays 69 games, has sort of his last great season, uh, and then only plays 19 more games the rest of his career. I should mention that Mark Mortier, uh, who's our colleague on the Sports History Network and does the Yesterday Sports podcast, who does a lot of things about New York uh, area sports from the 1970s and, and, you know, 60s and 70s. He joined me to talk about Willis Reed for this year's In Memoriam episode. And unfortunately, the the sound quality wasn't the best because of some some weather issues and some other things. So I'm going to throw that interview on um, at the end of this at the end of this little segment here, so you can hear Mark talk about him, talk about Willis Reed a little bit as well. So if some of this is repetitive from my conversation with Mark, then I, I do apologize for that in advance, but kind of first among equals, he was a leader. He was the captain of a team that eventually ended up having six hall of famers, seven, if you want to count Phil Jackson. And that moment is just emblematic of everything that those Knicks teams were in the seventies. About 20 years ago now, God, 15, 20 years ago, the MSG Network did a 50 greatest moments at the history of Madison Square Garden, and they did everything. So the top five, I forget in which order, but there was a Pope visit in there. There was the Ali Frazier one 
1971. There was the Rangers winning the Stanley Cup in 1994 for the first time in 54 years. You know, they had all kinds of different, whether it was boxing or concerts or I think John Lennon's last appearance at a concert was was there and, and all this stuff. And Willis Reed was number one. And clearly, oh, the concert for New York City after 9-11 yeah. was up there, too. And Willis Reed was up there, was number one. And for years, they always referred to that because the garden is laid, was laid out very differently. The tunnel, the teams would go up before and after the game. And at halftime, they would always say, oh, he's coming down the Willis Reed tunnel. And now that's gone. You know, that was one of the casualties of the, the MSG renovations. But just that little moment is, you know, etched in, in Nick's lore forever. And every time an injured player plays or comes back out after an injury, especially in basketball, mm-hmm. but even sometimes in other sports too, you know, football or, or, or hockey, but especially in basketball and the NBA, Willis Reed's name gets invoked. And so that, you know, he is sort of the, the godfather of the, the, you know, the sort of player fighting through an injury to leave it, lead his team to a, to a victory or a championship. It was a dramatic moment at a time when sports didn't manufacture those. So they really had very few dramatic moments like that, you know, not on the court. Yes. And, uh, you know, glad, uh, glad we were able to talk about him a little bit. And, uh, if we, uh, if we double up a little bit, uh, with, with this, as well as the conversation with Mark then so be it, because if there's anybody, there's, there's probably few guys that Andrew and I would like talking about more, uh, you know, at length than Willis Reed. So, uh, glad we're able to honor him. Hi, everybody. As I just mentioned, we had done another segment on Willis Reed, Mark Mortier, host of the Yesterday's Sports Podcast on the Sports History Network, had joined me to talk about his memories of Willis Reed. There were a lot of technical issues, but Mark had some really great stuff to share about growing up a Knicks fan and what it was like to root for the team in the glory days of the 1970s. So check out this little segment and also check out Yesterday's Sports on the Sports History Network, especially if you're a New York sports fan. Mark's got a lot of really good material on there about the history of... uh, Various New York sports teams, the Knicks, the Giants, the Yankees. So uh, thanks to Mark, and I hope you enjoy this additional segment. Okay, uh, moving right along, and we're going to talk about Willis Reed, who was born born in 1942 and passed away on March 21st. As starting center and captain of the New York Knicks of the early 1970s, Reed led the team to three NBA finals and two world championships. In 1970, he was named League MVP, NBA Finals MVP, and All-Star Game MVP, the only player ever to be so honored. His heroic return from injury in Game 7 of that year's NBA Finals served as the catalyst for the Knicks' first world championship. He was also named MVP of the 1973 NBA Finals. And unfortunately, Andrew is not able to join us for this one, but I am pleased to have another colleague from the Sports History Network, uh, Mark Mortier, who is the host of Yesterday's Sports on the Sports History Network. Um, Mark, thanks so much for joining me for a few minutes here today. Oh, thank you for having me. So uh, why don't you just, uh, why don't we just sort of jump right in here? Give me a little bit about your memories of the great Willis Reed. Wow. I guess it started for me around... uh, 
69. I was seven years old. My older brother, my brother is about three and a half years older than me. Uh, he became a big sports fan, uh, probably because of my, my father was a big sports fan. Uh, my father was born in 1932, so he was a big uh, New York Yankees fan, a big New York Giants football fan. Wasn't really too much into basketball or hockey, but my brother was into uh, all four of the major sports. So I guess I would have to credit him for getting me to uh, get me into watching basketball. Uh, we would watch the, the Knicks on Channel 9, uh, and that was right around 1969. So the timing for me was perfect because that was a big year in New York. The Jets had just won the Super Bowl in January of that year. Then the Mets won the World Series in October. And now we have uh, a Knicks team that look like uh, – they might uh, wind up going all the way. So that was really the first season that I remember watching. And, of course, uh, Willis Reed was the the team captain, uh, the leader team. I kind of of always gravitated towards players who were leaders, but not in a bragging way, not a lot of – you know, he wasn't a rah-rah type of guy. He led by example, and he just went out there and did the job, and uh, all his teammates rallied around him. So that's really how I became a big uh, Willis Reed fan. And he really was sort of a quiet leader. Uh, I was doing some research, uh, reading up bef- before, and yeah. Andrew, have done, Andrew and I have done episodes on this era of the Knicks in the past, we did a whole episode earlier this summer on the, the 73 team on their 50th anniversary of winning the title. One of the things about Reed, sort of like you said, he was not a rah-rah type of guy. He was a quiet leader. And there's stories of him. Red Holzman would always use him uh, to talk to Cassie Russell. Cassie Russell, who had been a starter on the Knicks uh, earlier on in the mid-60s and then sort of was, was moved to the bench a little bit when Bill Bradley came along and it's a lot of Russell who was a volatile guy and you know had a temper and would get himself worked up. Red Holzman would often use Willis Reed to sort of quietly go to Kazzy Russell man to man, find out what was bothering him, sort of get him past whatever the issue was. And Reed, who had been on the team longer than most other players on the Knicks, he was there before Bradley, he was there before Frazier or any of those guys. Uh, had sort of uh, struggled to find his way a little bit earlier on uh, in the you know mid to late 60s. He had sort of been part of the one of the first Twin Towers situations with Walt Bellamy, uh, who was another center. And you, the two of them really sort of struggled to coexist on the court. And, and Bellamy was a good, really good player in his own right. But finally, in the 68-69 season, right around the time period that you're talking about, Mark, the Knicks make this big trade. They get rid of Bellamy. They send him to Detroit bring back Dave DeBusher and that um <clears throat> excuse me that kind of sets the stage for this great Nick team this sort of all-time legendary starting five of Frazier Barnett Reed Bradley and DeBusher going into the 69-70 season and like you said that must have been a really cool time for you to start to become a Nick fan right as that season was getting underway It certainly was it was uh 
big year in New York sports, and uh, I really didn't know a lot of basketball. I mean, me and my brother, my my extent of basketball was just me and my brother uh, shooting hoops in our driveway. My father had set up the, the basketball net on our garage, and uh, I hadn't really, you know, I wasn't really old enough yet to, to uh, you know, sit still long enough, I guess, to walk to become a spectator of sports. Mm-hmm. But like I say, around 1969, I, I was seven, mm-hmm. seven years old, so I was finally at the age where, you know, I could sit still and uh, start to really, you know, understand the game. And, uh, you know, it was, it was uh, you, you mentioned Red Holtzman, he was the you know, a main reason for that, I thought he was one of the greatest coaches. He was really brought that team together as a team. As you mentioned, you know, some of the players had issues, and Holtzman knew that uh, he had a good leader in Willis Reed. So, yeah, that was just uh, an exciting time to be a Knicks fan. Uh, I, I, I started watching at just the right time, and really just uh, uh, right away gravitated towards uh, Willis Reed because, like I say, I always like those. I always uh, like those leaders that led by example, and uh, you know his teammates. They just rallied around them. They knew that there there was no question about who the leader was on that team. Then there wasn't a lot of wasn't a lot of uh, trash talking like there is today. Uh, if you if you uh, if there was an opponent that you had a rivalry with, it wasn't about you know going out there and trash talk, and you just went out there and you got the job done. And I know one one uh, player. I remember hearing an interview with uh, Will Chamberlain, who of course is one of the greats of all time. Some many some people say the greatest, but um. I remember an interview with him, and they asked him which player gave him the most trouble, which player he he really didn't like playing against. And right away, he said, Willis Reed. And they they asked him why, and he said, because Willis Reed was so physical, you know, underneath the uh, going for the rebounds and, and things like that. He was very physical, and he said, I always... Will Chamberlain said, I always felt very sore the next morning after And in fact, uh, in that 70 finals, in that game seven, when Willis Reed came, comes out and makes his famous entry through the tunnel, one of the things that gets pointed out is that Will Chamberlain immediately stopped warming up and just watched Willis Reed warm up. And you could yeah. sort of, like you said, he was very much sort of, I don't know if you want to use the word intimidated, but distracted, preoccupied with what Willis Reed was doing. So even though Willis Reed and a lot of people don't realize that this Willis Reed actually only scored four points in that game. He scored um, scored the first two baskets of the game for the Knicks and then was held scoreless the rest of the game. But just his presence as this great player, as the captain was enough to carry them through uh, and win that that game seven, one of the only two world championships in in Knicks history. The other thing I wanted to mention, Mark, before we let you go, you actually met Willis Reed at one point, correct? I did meet him. Uh, Well, first I got to see him play. Uh, 
at Madison Square Garden, which I never, you know, I never expected that. Um, my older cousin made a phone call and said, uh, well, his mother worked in the city. My aunt, she worked in the city. Someone that she worked with had two tickets for uh, the next game. They were playing the Milwaukee Bucks that night. And so we got a phone call from my cousin. He said, uh, I got two tickets to the Knicks game. But uh, so it was between me and my brother who was going to go with him. And I got to see Willis Reed play against uh, Jabbar, uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And I think that was right after he changed his name from Lou Alcindor. Mm-hmm. I guess it was maybe a year. I guess it was maybe um, I got to meet Willis Reed. Uh, one of my classmates in school uh, said that his father was going to take him into uh, Manhattan, New York City. Willis Reed was doing a uh, like a promotion for his summer basketball camp, and it was at I think it was at a bookstore. So he was going to be signing autographs at this bookstore to promote his uh, summer camp, basketball camp. My classmate asked me if I wanted to go. I said, of course I want to go. So uh, his father drove us into the city, and we got to meet Willis Reed. And to this day, I regret, you know, back then, this was probably like maybe around 1973. So this was long before, you know, people carry. We didn't have cell phones, of course. So you didn't have a camera with you wherever you went. But I still regret that nobody, you know, between the three of us, myself, my friend, and his father, no one thought to bring a camera, and we didn't get pictures of the autograph. And it was uh, quite a moment to meet to meet uh, Willis Reed. I remember, you know, I was only maybe 10, 11 years old, so I, when it was my turn, you know, we waited in line when it was my turn. I walked up to the table, and he stood up to shake my hand. And, of course, I felt like, you know, a little, uh, I felt like I was about four years old. I never saw such a large person, six foot nine, his his hand just engulfed my hand. And, you know, when you're that age, you know, you're just so in awe of, of the athletes that you watch that, uh, I didn't really even, I, I kind of got tongue-tied. I didn't even know what to say to him. I just told him, you're my favorite player. And he asked me what my name was. And then uh, I wanted to, you know, talk to him more. But I was so nervous and <laughs> tongue-tied that that was, the end. that was the end of my meeting. But it's a moment I'll always remember. That's great, and he he sounds like he was he was a nice man and a, and a you know good good to the fans in addition to being such a great player. And I think that would be a good place to end our first in memoriam episode for 2023. Art McNally, Sal Bando, Billy Packer, Bobby Hull, Bobby Bethard, Ted Lerner, Tim McCarver, Bud Grant. Joe Pepitone and Willis Reed. And thanks to Darren, Dana, Jeremy, and Mark for joining us. And as always, I want to thank Andrew for being my partner on Hello World Sports for the fourth year. 
We'll be back in a few weeks with part two. Goodbye, old sports. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. With every race, every qualifying run, and every pit stop, Tim Coffeen would feel the pressure and excitement. With his own podcast on the Sports History Network called Tim Coffeen Talks IndyCar and Racing History, Tim will share those very same racing emotions and memories with his listeners. Learn, laugh, and enjoy the world of IndyCar racing through the eyes of Tim Coffeen. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.